This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week, I will give you a preview of the February issue of the Observer. First, a special feature, DeMille's Silent Ten Commandments at 100. First, biblical epic surprisingly Jewish connections go way beyond the obvious. In the early 1980s, a group of amateur archaeologists discovered the remains of the city of Ramses, buried beneath dunes of sand. Over a period of 30 years, with significant fundraising and help from a professional archaeologist, they would excavate such artifacts as the head and limbs of a sphinx, pieces of statuary, Egyptian coins, and even bottles. But these adventurers were not in Egypt and most of the artifacts they dug up were made of rapidly deteriorating plaster. They had found the lost city of Cecil B. DeMille in the Napomo Dunes of Guadalupe, California, which the director had buried there after filming on location in 1923. One hundred years ago, Cecil B. DeMille filmed the first biblical epic, the silent, original version of the Ten Commandments. In its day, it was the largest, most popular project ever put on film. With a price tag of $1.46 million, that's $26 million today, it was also the most expensive. Following its glittering premiere at Groman's Egyptian Theater in Hollywood on December 4, 1923, the Ten Commandments ran for more than a year around the country and set a box office record of $4.17 million dollars that's $774 million today, a record that stood for Paramount at Paramount for 25 years. It was the top-grossing U.S. film for the year it was in release. Among the 2,500 extras DeMille brought with him for three weeks of filming on the Napomo Dunes were 250 Orthodox Jews from Los Angeles. Most of them, immigrants from Eastern Europe, didn't speak English. Yet for them, the Silent Ten Commandments was more than a movie. Playing the roles of their ancestors in the Exodus was emotional for them and the others on the set. During those moments, the American dream and their heritage converged. The screenplay by Jeannie McPherson is in two parts. The Exodus serves as the 45-minute prologue for a modern morality tale set in jazz-age San Francisco. Ten decades after the film's premiere, the modern story comes off as heavy-handed and formulaic, but the prologue, even with overly theatrical performances and some anachronisms, offers visual moments that remain remarkable. Exterior shots for the Exodus were filmed on the Napomo Dunes of Guadalupe, California, 175 miles up the coast from Los Angeles. This is where famous players Lasky, the film production company that would change its name to Paramount, built DeMille's colossal set for the city of Ramses. We believed rightly that both in appearance and in their deep feeling of the significance of the Exodus, they would give the best possible performance as the children of Israel, DeMille wrote in his autobiography of the Jewish extras. They had arrived in the United States with the great wave of Eastern European Jewish immigration. Between 1881 and 1924, approximately two and a half million Jews fled the vicious pogroms of Eastern Europe. 
pogroms or violent attacks on Jews by local non-Jewish populations. Jews languished in persecution in Eastern Europe before, during, and after World War I. In her 2018 book, Gendered Violence, Jewish Women in the Pogroms of 1917-1921, scholar Arena Astachkovich writes that between 1917 and 1921, there were over a thousand pogroms in about 500 localities in Russia and Eastern Europe. Rape, she says, was used as a strategic weapon in the pogroms that erupted in Ukraine. During that period, at least 100,000 Jews died, and unknown numbers of Jewish women were raped. When Jewish lecturer and writer Rita Kissin interviewed Cecil DeMille in April 1923 about his upcoming Ten Commandments project, she asked to be in the picture. Never the publicist, he agreed. She arrived in Guadalupe with a contract that began, This location is not a vacation. And it wasn't. Actors huddled beneath blankets between takes, seeking protection from the Pacific winds and sandstorms. But for the immigrants, the pay was worth it. $10 a day for adults, $182 today, $7.50 a day for children, $136 today. In late May 1923, the entire company boarded two special trains from Los Angeles. A local newspaper account of the arrival at the Guadalupe station of the first train describes old men, infirm of step, feeble with long hair and patriarchal beards, with their belongings tied up in newspapers or in battered old suitcases, they huddled together. After the men were helped onto trucks and buses, the women's train arrived with plump Jewish mothers holding their little children by their hands. Horse-driven sleds carried them over the dunes to the tenth city erected a mile from the set. These quarters, divided into companies of 50 to 100 people, would come to be called Camp de Mill. Gambling and drinking were prohibited. Men's and women's quarters were separated by Lasky Boulevard, named for producer Jesse Lasky and policed by guards and deputy sheriffs. Men were not allowed in the women's section without a pass and a chaperone. DeMille made certain that the camp had its own synagogue, presided over by Rabbi Aaron Markadov, and an interpreter. But even so, certain Jewish needs were overlooked. On their first day at Camp DeMille, the Jews chose hunger over the ham dinner they were served. I sent post-haste to Los Angeles for people competent to set up a strictly kosher kitchen, DeMille wrote. The captain of the Jewish company was permitted to choose his own cooks, and make all arrangements for food. At the wardrobe tents, the extras received their costumes, made of new material but styled to look worn and dirty. During a fitting, Kissin overheard a conversation between two middle-aged women trying to figure out how to drape their costumes. "'Take that off in you, Mrs. Rosen,' said Mrs. Kaplan, "'or the director will be mad with you. "'I've heard DeMille say in the olden times "'there wasn't no safety pins.' Safety pins or not, several journalists witnessed the extras at work during the filming of the flight from Egypt. These Jews streamed out of the great gates with tears running down their cheeks, and then without prompting or rehearsal they began singing in Hebrew the old chants of their race, which had been sung in synagogues for thousands of years, wrote Los Angeles Times reporter Hallett Abend. 
According to syndicated Hollywood columnist Jack Jungmeyer, the Jews chanted, Father of Mercy and Hero Israel. He heard one of the older Jews say to a crew member, We know this script. Our fathers studied it long before there were movies. This is the tale of our beginnings that is deep in our hearts. An elderly woman, overcome with emotion, fell to her knees and shook a fist at the gates of Pharaoh, weeping and casting sand on her head. Mrs. Rosen said that although she needed the money, she would have worked for nothing on the Ten Commandments. It's just like living in them times when we got the Torah and now we're going to get it all over again in a picture by Mr. DeMille, she said. For the scene depicting the parting of the sea, actor Theodore Roberts as Moses stood on a rock at the Pacific shoreline, surrounded by the children of Israel. As sunset approached, clouds, clouds blocked out the light, threatening to ruin the shot. Just then the clouds cleared, Abend wrote, the nearly level rays of the sun made a halo around the figure of the prophet, gave a startling radiance to his face. A gasp went through the crowd, Kissin wrote. The faces of men and women reflected this light. Tears trembled on wrinkled cheeks. Sobs came from husky throats. For many, the world had moved back three thousand years, and they stood once more on the shores of the Red Sea, viewing once more the good omen of deliverance. Actress Leatrice Joy was also on the set. Though she played a leading role in the film's modern story, DeMille invited her to join the extras in the desert. God Almighty, you never heard anything so sad as the dirge of the Jewish people, she told documentary filmmaker Peter Brosnan in April 1985, a week before her death. They gave the impression that this was it. It was never done before. They were living the time, these people. They weren't acting. One thing in particular was DeMille's desire to give to the screen the tremendous love that God had for the Jewish people, Joy said. You see, Mr. DeMille's mother was Jewish. Matilda Beatrice DeMille, known as Beatrice, was born in 1853 to the prominent Samuel family of Liverpool, England. From 1920 to 1925, a relative, first Viscount Herbert Lewis Samuel, served as the first High Commissioner of British Mandate Palestine. After World War I, the League of Nations approved a mandate for Great Britain to govern, to govern Palestine on behalf of the League. Palestine had previously been part of the Ottoman Empire. The mandate provided for the eventual creation of a Jewish state. DeMille's cousin, Herbert Lewis Samuel, oversaw the administration of that territory at the same time as DeMille was directing the Ten Commandments. Samuel was a staunch supporter of Zionism. He was also the first practicing Jew to serve as the leader of a major British political party and as a cabinet minister. In some ways, Herbert Lewis Samuel was like a modern Moses who led his people to the Promised Land. Cecilia Presley, Cecil B. DeMille's granddaughter told the Observer that Beatrice probably came to America by herself. The Samuel family opposed Beatrice's budding romance with Henry Churchill DeMille, an actor, playwright, teacher, and lay leader in the Episcopal Church. Even so, she became an Episcopalian and, 
on July 1st, 1876, married Henry at St. Luke's Church in Brooklyn. When Henry died of typhoid 17 years later, it was up to Beatrice to support her sons, 14-year-old William and 11-year-old Cecil. She ran a school for girls and later became a play broker and agent. It was she who introduced Cecil to Jesse Lasky. Their production company was a forerunner of Paramount. Presley said that although DeMille didn't find out about his mother's Jewish background until he was a grown man, he was proud of it. She added that DeMille himself couldn't have been Jewish any more than he could have been a Muslim or a Brahmin. This is evident in the Christian overtones of the modern part of the film. It was DeMille's father who instilled a strong sense of religion in him. Henry read the Bible aloud to his sons at night, teaching his sons that the laws of God were not mere laws but are the law, DeMille wrote. Presley said that Beatrice's Jewish lineage likely inspired DeMille to hire the immigrants for the movie. No question about it, it was a very special thing for him, she said. These Orthodox Jews were an example to all of the rest of us, not only in their fidelity to their laws, but in the way they played their parts, DeMille wrote in his autobiography. They were the children of Israel. This was their exodus, their liberation. They needed no direction from me to let their voices rise in ancient song, and their wonderfully expressive faces shine with the holy light of freedom as they followed Moses toward the promised land. Even as the exodus had ended for these American newcomers, the gates of freedom were closing to would-be immigrants. The following year, the Immigration Act of 1924 slashed the annual number of emigres from Southern Europe, Italians, and Eastern Europe, Jews, allowed into the United States by 87%. The U.S. State Department recorded that the purpose of the Immigration Act of 1924 was to preserve the ideal of U.S. homogeneity. With the gates to the United States and so many other nations all but closed, the Jews of Eastern Europe and Central Europe would essentially be trapped there during the Holocaust. After the Ten Commandments filming on location was completed, DeMille had the set taken apart and buried at the site, probably to save money. Sixty years later, in 1983, filmmaker Peter Brosnan rediscovered DeMille's Lost City. And in 2011, he secured permission and funding for the first archaeological dig in the Guadalupe Dunes, uncovering rare artifacts on the set. Many of the large pieces are now on display at the Guadalupe Nipomo Dune Center in Guadalupe. And we're going to have a brunch discussion about the movie. Uh, I'll be leading a brunch discussion and a partial screening, at least the prologue, the 45-minute prologue, of the, which is the Exodus narrative, of DeMille's 1923 The Ten Commandments, at 9.45 in the morning, Sunday, February 25th, at Temple Israel, 130 Riverside Drive in Dayton. I'll also bring items from my collection of 1923 Ten Commandments memorabilia. The Brunch is a program of Temple Israel's Brotherhood Dorothy and Lewis Writer Band Lecture Series in partnership with the Miami Valley Jewish Genealogy and History Organization, and Beth Abraham Synagogue Men's Club's Rick Pinsky Brunch Speaker Series. The cost is $7. 
RSVP to 937-496-0050 by February 23rd. And next we go over to the date and section of the February date in Jewish Observer. Longtime JWV post commander dies. Steve Markman, commander of Dayton's Jewish War Veterans Post 587, who served on and off in that role since 2008, died January 2nd. He was 76. Under his leadership, the Post volunteered at the Dayton VA Medical Center, participated in naturalization ceremonies to welcome new citizens, coordinated the placement of U.S. flags at the graves of Jewish veterans for Memorial Day, maintained connections with Jewish military personnel at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, hosted member brunches, assisted Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops, and helped lead tours of Prejudice and Memory, a Holocaust exhibit at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. From 2016 to 2018, Markman was JWV commander for the state of Ohio. An aerospace engineer, Markman served in the Air Force as a missile maintenance officer. He then worked for the Department of Defense for 33 years. Markman was also a skilled woodworker. As a volunteer, he helped restore airplanes at the Air Force Museum beginning in 2006. He worked on the restoration of the Memphis Bell World War II-era heavy bomber, recreating its wooden fittings, including its doors. Last year, the museum honored Markman with its President's Volunteer Service Award for his completion of 4,000 volunteer hours. In 2023, he also coordinated Jewish War Veterans Post 587's 75th Anniversary Brunch. At the Post's annual Jewish War Veterans Shabbat service in 2022, Markman shared that his time in the military gave him a new love for Judaism. When we return to civilian life, we take with us not just the skills and confidence we learned, but also our call to service and some new outlook about ourselves and our way of thinking, he said. Scout Shabbat The community is invited to attend the Dayton Area's Scout Shabbat service, 9.30 a.m., Saturday, February 10th, at Beth Abraham Synagogue. The service will honor participating scouts, scouters, and scout alumni. Scouts of all faiths are welcome. Current scouts and scouters are asked to register at miamivalleybsa.org forward slash calendar and to wear their uniforms. To participate in the service, contact David Schuster at dshuster at spcglobal.net. Participating scouts and scouters will each receive a 2024 Scout Shabbat patch. Beth Abraham Synagogue is located at 305 Sugar Camp Circle, Oakwood. A Kiddush lunch will follow the service. Shabbat dinner at Chabad. Chabad of Greater Dayton will host a community Shabbat dinner at 5.30 p.m. Friday, February 9th. The cost is $25 adults, $10 children. That's ages 3 to 12 or student. Chabad is located at 2001 Far Hills Avenue, Oakwood. Register at ChabadDayton.org. Three area congregations in recent swatting wave. Temple Anchiamath in Piqua, Temple Beth Or in Washington Township, and Temple Israel in Dayton were among more than 200 Jewish institutions across the United States 
to receive email bomb threats at the end of December. The three area temples received these swatting threats at 8.25 a.m. on Tuesday, December 26th by an email sent to numerous Jewish congregations in Ohio. With the subject line, Explosives Inside of Your Synagogue, the email read, There are explosives, uh, explosives inside of your synagogue. The explosives are well hidden, and they will go off in a few hours. You will all lay in a pool of blood. Local law enforcement has deemed these threats as not credible, though they investigate each one. This was the third emailed bomb threat Temple Anche Emeth has received since October. Israeli tour guide educator leads Temple Israel Zoom course. Muki Jankelowitz, Temple Israel's tour guide on past trips to Israel, will lead a free three-part Zoom series, Complicated History, Zionism, Antisemitism, and the Middle East, at 4 p.m. Sundays, February 4, 11, and 18. A licensed Israel tour guide, Jankelowitz, was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. After he made Aliyah, he served in the IDF as a combat medic. He received his master's degree in Midrash and Agadah from the Schechter Institutes in Jerusalem. He and his family live in Modi'in. Register for the course at tidayton.org or call 937-496-0050. Israel Emergency Campaign Nearly at Goal As of press time, the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton's Israel Emergency Campaign has raised $854,000 toward its goal of $856,000. Jewish federations of North America assigned this dollar goal based on the Dayton area's estimated Jewish population and per capita giving to the federation's annual campaign. To date, the JFNA system has raised more than $768 million and has allocated close to $283 million to a wide range of humanitarian organizations in Israel. The funding provides food and financial assistance for impacted families, the elderly, and homebound, covers the cost of temporary housing, respite trips, children's activities, and increased security for communities under fire. To donate to the Israel Emergency Campaign, go to jewishdayton.org. And next, from the Dayton section of the Observer, Dayton City Commission's ceasefire resolution attempts to walk tightrope. Unanimously approved wording expresses sympathy, not blame, in Israel-Hamas war. The Dayton City Commission unanimously passed a resolution December 20th on the current conflict in the Middle East that urgently calls for a ceasefire with the release of all civilians being illegally held or imprisoned on both sides of the conflict, along with the establishment of humanitarian aid corridors in order to preserve human life. The informal resolution also expressed sympathy for the ongoing human suffering caused by the conflict, affirmed Dayton is welcoming to Jews and Muslims, and encouraged Dayton's residents to offer support and sincere condolences to members of our community affected by the ongoing violence and loss of life. Dayton's resolution also noted the city's unique voice in this conflict as one of only five cities in the United States to have official sister city programs with both a city in Israel 
and a city in the Palestinian territories, alone Israel and Safit in the West Bank. The resolution denounced Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, affirmed its support for the Israeli and Palestinian people to live in peace and security, championed a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and condemned all acts of violence committed against civilians in Gaza, in Israel, and around the world. Prior to the city commission meeting, demonstrators outside City Hall unraveled a scroll with the names of 7,000 children killed in Gaza since the war began. In a Facebook post a week before the resolution vote, Dayton City Commissioner Shanice Turner-Sloss wrote that while she affirms her commitment to combating Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, and her support for the people of both Israel and Palestine, we must recognize and respond to the atrocities against Palestinians. And in November, Dayton City Commissioner Darrell Fairchild offered a prayer at the Islamic Council of Dayton's Stop the Genocide Ceasefire Now Peace Rally at Dayton's Courthouse Square. In an interview with The Observer, Fairchild said he had not been aware the rally was framed as Stop the Genocide and that he hadn't thought through whether he believed Israel was committing genocide against the citizens of Gaza. The final language on the resolution did not level terms against Israel, such as atrocities or genocide. It also referred to members of Hamas as militants rather than terrorists. The resolution referred in general to the horrific violence of this war. It was Fairchild who had proposed the resolution, Along with leaders of Dayton's Arab and Muslim communities, the commissioner mentioned at the December 20th commission meeting that he sought input from Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton CEO Kathy Gardner. We've seen now how viciously anti-Semitic some of these city commission meetings around the country have become when they voted on resolutions about the Israel-Hamas war, Gardner said. That did not happen here. Yes, the final language didn't go as far as we would have liked in condemning Hamas, but yes, we agree that there should be a ceasefire. Hamas should declare an unconditional surrender, lay down its arms, and free the remaining hostages abducted from Israel immediately. Fairchild told those at the December 20th commission meeting that he thought the resolution was an important step to speak our desires for peace and knowing that it's going to be insufficient, that unfortunately we don't have the power to bring that peace, but hopefully our light will be added to others and will move towards that day. He said he was encouraged that the resolution pointedly called out the rise of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and hate crimes in general. I look forward to working with our community members to address those issues as well because we know that members of our community are feeling unsafe, and that should be unacceptable to all of us. And next from the Mazel Tov section of The Observer, Josh Alpert, Dayton BBYO City Director, has been nominated by the chapter's teens for the David Bitker Unsung Hero Award, an award presented annually by the International BBYO Organization to an outstanding advisor who demonstrates integrity, humility, dedication, and hard work. Josh not only serves the area's Jewish teens, he's also assistant rehousing manager for the St. Vincent de Paul shelters in Dayton. I'm beyond touched and honored that the kids think this much of me, Josh said. I'm on the verge of tears and beyond words. 
You just never know how much of an impact you have. After more than 35, uh, 39 years with Beth Abraham Synagogue, Facilities Manager Dennis Day retired at the end of December. The congregation is now planning a retirement celebration for Dennis. Keep your eye on the Observer for details and hopefully to read an interview with Dennis, too. It's been a busy theater season for Shana Fishbein. She recently played Joanne in Rent at the Springboro Community Theater, Linda in Evil Dead, the musical, and Emma in Prom, both at Dayton Playhouse. Next up, she'll play Sandra in Springboro Community Theater's production of Big Fish, which runs February 23rd through March 3rd. Send your Mazel Tov announcements to mweiss at jfgd.net. And next in the religion section of the Observer, to welcome interfaith couples, conservative synagogue hired Cantor, who is allowed to wed them, by Gabi Klein, Jewish Journal of Greater Boston. Sarah Freudenberger has spent a lot of time being told no. A year and a half out of college, the no came from cantorial schools when she applied for ordination. Months later, when she got engaged, it came from the three rabbis she had worked with at a Reform synagogue in Florida when she asked if they would officiate her wedding. Both refusals were because, like 42% of married American Jews, according to a 2020 Pew study, Freudenberger's spouse is not a Jew. Peter, her husband, and the father of her three children, is Buddhist. It took time to find a cantorial program that would allow her to get ordained with a non-Jewish spouse, just as it had taken time before she found a rabbi who would officiate at her interfaith wedding, which took place in 2020. It was such a gift to us, she said. Looking back, I didn't realize how much it would have affected me personally, how much regret I would have felt if I hadn't had a rabbi at my wedding. She added, I can't untangle my personal experience from my officiant experience. It is the main reason why I know firsthand how much of a blessing it is to be able to do that for people. Now, Freudenberger says she's passing on this gift to other Jews like her by offering interfaith wedding officiation as the candor of Congregation Shirat Hayam in Swampscott, Massachusetts. She can't preside over the ceremonies inside Shirat Hayam's building because the congregation is part of the conservative movement of Judaism which bars its member communities from hosting interfaith wedding ceremonies. But because Freudenberger did not attend a conservative seminary and is not part of its clergy associations, she is free to officiate the weddings elsewhere. The arrangement illuminates how a changing rabbinic marketplace is opening doors for interfaith families at conservative synagogues, where the movement's prohibitions around interfaith weddings have imposed barriers to welcoming intermarried couples. Intermarriage and the inclusion of intermarried couples and families are among the most important issues, the conservative Masorti movement is addressing, said Rabbi Jacob Blumenthal, CEO of the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism and the Rabbinical Assembly, two leading organizations of the conservative Masorti movement. Masorti is the name of the conservative movement in Israel outside of North America. Conservative Masorti rabbis who were members of the Rabbinical Assembly are not authorized to officiate in interfaith wedding ceremonies, he said, but rather than focusing on intermarriage as a threat to Jewish survival, as we did in the mid-20th century, today we are instead exploring ways to engage all couples and families 
with a Jewish partner in the beauty and meaning of Jewish community and practice. In recent years, the movement's standards on intermarriage have shifted. In 2017, conservative institutions voted to allow non-Jews to become members of synagogues. The following year, it removed a ban on its rabbis attending interfaith weddings. In 2020, the USCJ hired Karen McGinnity as interfaith specialist. She recently produced a handbook on interfaith inclusion that Blumenthal says is a vital step in shifting the status of interfaith families within the movement while holding firm on matters of, tradi on matters of traditional Jewish law or halakha, which forbids Jews from marrying non-Jews. Blumenthal said the movement has established a task force that will recommend further steps for welcoming intermarried couples. He said the task force, composed of, lay, uh, of clergy and lay leaders, will aim to balance tradition and modernity within the framework of halakha. Shirat Hayam has been striving to find ways to include and welcome interfaith families in its community for years. In 2018, Rabbi Michael Rogozin founded an interfaith task force to address an issue challenging many in the community at the time. Non-Jewish spouses of Jewish congregants could not serve on the board of directors. Ultimately, the congregation voted to extend full membership privileges to non-Jewish spouses. A couple of generations back, intermarriage was a different phenomenon. Intermarriage may have been more likely to walk away from Jewish tradition, Jewish, uh, Jewish community, Jewish uh, raising Jewish kids, said Rogozin. He noted that today the data indicate otherwise. The 2020 Pew survey of American Jews found that Jews married to other Jews are far more likely than intermarried couples to say they are raising their minor children as Jewish by religion. But it also found that the adult children of intermarried couples are increasingly likely to identify as Jewish, and the two-thirds of intermarried couples today say they are raising their children with a Jewish identity. As that data was emerging, long-standing patterns in rabbinic hiring were changing rapidly. In recent years, the number of people seeking to attend denominational seminaries, including the ones operated by the conservative movement, has fallen sharply, creating a gap between the number of synagogues seeking rabbis and cantors and the number of applicants on the job market. Meanwhile, non-traditional, often low-residency programs have grown, including the Aleph Ordination Program, which ordained Freudenberger in 2022. Aleph is affiliated with the Jewish Renewal Movement, but its graduates work in all kinds of synagogues. And when Freudenberger emerged as a leading candidate in Shirat Hayam's Cantor Search, Rogozin saw an opportunity. The light bulb went off in my head, he said. This is how we're going to signal to the broader Jewish community that's looking at Shirat Hayam for the North Shore. We're going to signal to intermarried families that this is a place in which you belong. Before moving ahead with the plan for a renewal ordained cantor to officiate interfaith weddings for the community, Shirat Hayam leaders checked with the USCJ. The response they got was that the scenario would not require the synagogue to disaffiliate from the movement as long as the service wasn't held on the congregation's property. Blumenthal said the new task force is examining cases like Shiriat Hayam's 
and putting together a report that will help us frame important questions like the one the ones that are raised by the practice in Swampscott. During the interview process, the search committee asked Freudenberger if she would be willing to officiate interfaith weddings. That sent me a clear message that the synagogue was interested, she said. They got on, they not only wanted to allow it, but were interested in me doing them for the congregation. She was hired in 2021. We don't want to be back room about it, she said. We want to be open about it. We want to tell people about it. We want to say, you're welcome here. You're welcome with us. We want you to be a part of our community. Since her ordination, Freudenberger has officiated at four weddings, two between Jews and two in her faith. People that are coming looking for a Jewish wedding want a Jewish wedding, she said. If their answer is no, what does that tell them about being Jewish? What does that tell them about being Jewish as a family? And next from the Jewish Family Education page of the Jewish Observer, Unity or Diversity, from the Judaism's Worldview series by Candice R. Kleitek. The brainchild of Jewish philanthropist Harold Grinspoon, PJ Library, is a free Jewish book club for families that provides more than 1,100 unique stories for celebrating Jewish values, traditions, and culture, and strengthening Jewish connection and identity. In 18 years, it has delivered more than 50 million books, published in seven languages. Each month, it ships 680,000 books, 12 different titles, to newborns through tweens in 36 countries on five continents. P.J. Library exemplifies a key Jewish worldview, unity balanced by diversity. In its opening verses, the Torah establishes this worldview. From the oneness of the divine emerges a world of differences, writes Rabbi Mendy Herson. God then creates humankind in the divine image, both male and female, implying unity between God and humankind and between one human and another. In the second version, a single human is created from the soil, becoming man, Ish. One of his sides is removed and fashioned into a totally distinct female being, Isha, described as man's Eitzer Kenegdo, a helper against him. The Isha is a unique counterpart to the Ish. When man becomes one with woman as his wife, the narrative returns to unity. By way of contrast, the subsequent stories of the Flood and the Tower of Babel imply that neither quality pursued solo, rather, um, by way of contrast, the subsequent stories of the Flood and the Tower of Babel imply that either quality pursued solo is ruinous. In the era of the Flood, everyone lived only for themselves. There was only diversity. In the era of the Babel building project, everyone was forced to become an anonymous cog in the construction community. There was only unity. Both stories end in disaster. In other words, the world operates optimally when unity and diversity are in balance. Later Jewish writings also reflect this theme. Judaism's canonical texts are anthologies of arguments, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs observes, made famous by the legendary disputes between Hillel and Shammai. Yet the sages of the Talmud were of one mind about their fundamental role as interpreters and preservers of biblical law and tradition. 
Rabbi Tali Lowenthal notes, as the sages themselves put it, despite all the diversity of opinion, all are the words of the living God. The panorama of Jewish history is a collage of events that eventually strike a balance between unity and diversity. The most clear-cut example is the Jewish diaspora. Over the centuries, Jews scattered across the world and adopted uh, scattered across the world and adopted the languages, cultures, traditions, even the values and ideas of their host countries. No small people is more diverse ethnically, culturally, attitudinally, and religiously, writes Sachs. And yet, despite the pressures of dominant cultures and the ever-expanding diaspora, Jews have not lost their peoplehood, their religion, or their connection to the land of Israel, Israeli writer and speaker Han Mazig notes. Where do you see a balance of unity and diversity in the following tales? The Blue Box during storytelling time at the nursing home, Clara unexpectedly signaled she wanted to participate. Speaking slowly, she struggled to recall words, to pronounce them clearly. As a young mother, Clara learned of the horrific Nazi concentration camps and felt called to help. So every afternoon, she took her young son and a blue box JNF box in hand and went door to door throughout the Jewish neighborhoods nearby, collecting money for Israel. Then she approached other communities. Everyone gave, she told the group, the Irish, the Italians, the Greeks. They said, I feel so bad for your people. Thank you for giving me a chance to help. Until the birth of her second child, Clara and her son, uh, Clara and her son collected money to bring the survivors home to Israel. She finished speaking and the room erupted into applause. Yids and Yuds. When he was a young child first learning the Aleph base, Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak of Pershicha recounts he pointed to the letter Yud and asked his teacher, What is this dot? He answered, The letter Yud. Then the teacher pointed to two Yuds together. He explained, Those two Yuds together spell the name, the holy name of God. Fascinated, the boy Yaakov looked into the Chumash, the printed version of the Torah, to find these two dots and discovered two other dots, one above the other. That's a colon, his teacher said. The boy was worried. The dots look alike. How will I remember the difference? Easily, his teacher replied. When the two dots sit next to each other as equals, they are the name of God. When one lords it over the other, then they aren't the name of God. From this, Rabbi Yaakov declares, I learned that when two Yids, two Jews, sit next together, next to each other as equals, God is present. But if you raise another above yourself or yourself over another, then there is no real meeting, no equality, and no divine presence bride and groom. At the wedding of the son of Reb Avram Yaakov of Sadigora to the daughter of Reb Tzvi HaKohen of Rimanov, the groom's grandfather stood up and said to the father of the bride, let me share with you the Yichus, venerable lineage of our family. 
He then listed numerous relatives with scholarly pedigrees, ending with, So, my dear friend, please share with us your lineage. My parents died when I was ten, Reb Tzvi said softly. I didn't know them well enough to tell you anything about them, other than they were righteous and good-hearted people. After their deaths, a relative apprenticed me to a tailor. During my apprenticeship, I learned two rules by which I governed my life. Do not spoil anything new, and fix anything old. With that, the groom's grandfather leaped to his feet, shouting joyously, This is a marriage of two great lineages. These children are doubly blessed. Unity creates a sense of cohesiveness and common purpose, while diversity allows for different voices and perspectives. How can the Jewish worldview of unity balanced by diversity influence how you live your life? And Literature to Share is suggested by Candice Arquiatek, a book about bupkis by Leslie Kimmelman. Bupkis, a Yiddish word for nothing or lacking, is turned on its head in this delightful picture book for children. It seems that something can be made from nothing. Find out how Zoe does so while helping others in her community. It's a book to bring to life at home, almost like magic. Try it. And Cooking a la Judea by Benedetta Jasmine Guetta. One of the most fascinating features of this cookbook is the inclusion of background information for the Jewish culinary traditions in Italy with descriptions of how Jewish cooking significantly influenced Italian cooking. Gorgeous images of foods in Italian locations and unique histories of many individual recipes feed the eye and mind, while the recipes themselves use easily accessible or familiar ingredients. Or simple substitutions, keeping the chef happy. Winter is the perfect time to warm up the kitchen with some food adventures. And next, from the Arts and Culture section of The Observer... Survivors reunited after 80 years, one formerly from Dayton, tell their tale in short documentary. By Julia Gergely, New York Jewish Week. In March 2022, Jack Waxel thought he recognized Sam Rohn, the keynote speaker at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's annual South Florida dinner in Boca Raton. But he couldn't quite place him. After all, at 97, Waxel had met thousands of people in his lifetime. But when Ron said the word Pionki, all the memories came rushing back. Ron, formerly known as Shmuel Rakowsk and Waxal, had been best friends as teenagers when they worked side by side making gunpowder at the Pionki labor camp in Poland for nearly a year during the Holocaust. Waxel was blown away by the coincidence of meeting Ron again at a gala nearly 79 years after they first became friends half a world away. After Ron's speech, Waxel made his way over to his table. In a new documentary about their rekindled friendship, Jack and Sam, Waxel recalls the first words he spoke to Ron in nearly 80 years. I said, you're my brother. It is such a beautiful love story, director Jordan Matthew Horowitz said after a screening December 3rd at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, New York's Holocaust Museum. It's a beautiful story of friendship that's endured so much over such a long period of time. 
The screening was part of the filmmaker's push to get the film in front of documentary branch members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences as they begin voting on the short list of Oscar-nominated short documentaries. Jack and Sam clocks in at 20 minutes. Around 40 voters, film industry leaders, and other documentary filmmakers attended this screening. Jack and Sam premiered at Provincetown International Film Festival in June and has since been shown at 21 film festivals across the globe, including at Docked NYC in November. Jewish actresses Sarah Silverman and Juliana Margolis signed on as executive producers for the film in October. My wish for the film is that everybody sees it, especially right now. I think from 6th grade to 12th grade, this film should be mandatory viewing, said Margolis in a talkback after the screening. The actress, who starred in the television series ER, has been outspoken about the rise in anti-Semitism and Jewish representation in Hollywood in recent years. Margolis, who is on the board of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, said she is personal friends with Waxall's granddaughter and believes the story in the film is crucial given the anti-Semitism experienced on and after October 7th when Hamas attacked Israel. She was also fresh off an apology after making disparaging comments about black Americans who have not supported Jews after October 7th. Right now, it is such a heightened moment, especially in terms of education and misinformation, it is our absolute responsibility as adults and human beings to make sure that we do everything we can to get these films seen, she said. The timing of this is extraordinary. We have to push as hard as we can to show the evidence of what people refuse to believe. Having testimony and recordings of history like this is so important, said Jack Klieger, the CEO of the museum. Horowitz has added a lot to the body of work that will live on for many years, and I appreciate that. Harwood said that as Holocaust survivors number fewer and fewer, the two-man story was important before October 7th, but in the wake of Hamas's attack on Israel and the international outburst of anti-Semitism in the months since, it has become even more relevant. I had no idea how the world can change so rapidly, he said. The film begins with Waxel and Roan narrating the stories of their childhoods in Poland over traditional documentary footage of pre-Holocaust European life in cities and ghettos. Both were born in 1924, Waxal and Jedlinsk, and Roan in a town near Krakow. They remember Kristallnacht, the Nazi-led pogrom of 1938, and both lived in ghettos before being moved into labor camps. Horowitz enlisted animator Luca Schrank to recall Waxel and Ron's depictions of being transported via cattle cars to labor camps and the details of their lives there, including their harrowing memories of taking their first showers in weeks but not knowing if water or gas would come out of the faucet. The film also animates Waxel's story of escaping the labor camp after hearing that some residents would be moved to Auschwitz. He and a group of 15 others escaped together and lived in a nearby forest for more than six months before the war ended. Only six of the group of 15 survived the whole winter. The movie doesn't cover why Roan didn't join them. Horowitz cited interviews with Roan who explained that both staying and leaving carried risks and he found it an impossible choice to make. 
he instead was moved to Sachsenhausen, another concentration camp, and then was sent on a death march during which he didn't eat for more than a week. He was on the march when the American army liberated the group in the spring of 1945. After the war, Waxel moved to Dayton, Ohio, where he lived until 1992, and became a successful owner of a scrapyard. Rohn joined Bericha, an underground organization that helped Jewish orphans escape to Palestine. He briefly moved to Israel and in 1956 settled in Canton, about 200 miles from his wartime companion. When they retired, both men moved to South Florida, never knowing they had lived and continued to live close to one another. That is, until the U.S. Holocaust Museum dinner in March of 2022. After the dinner, Waxel and Roan became close again, visiting each other frequently, updating each other on the last eight decades of their lives, and sharing their story at local high schools. It's like a miracle, Ron says in the film, of his renewed relationship with Waxhall. Harwood said he began working on the film a year and a half ago, just a few weeks after Roan and Waxhall reunited. I actually never thought I would ever make a Holocaust-themed movie, he said. I just didn't feel like there's anything I could add to the conversation that hasn't been said many times before. But then, when I heard about their story, I was so moved by it. Harwitz conducted extensive interviews with both men over the course of 2022. They also both spoke at a screening of the documentary at Florida Atlantic University in August, which Harwitz said was one of the highlights of my personal and professional career. Ron died on October 11th at age 99. Waxall, meanwhile, is 99 and attended the March for Israel on November 14th in Washington, D.C. with his daughter and granddaughter. We're just trying to get as many eyes on this as possible, Harwood said. That's what Jack wants more than anything. He is so concerned with the state of the world, and he feels like he has such valid points to make about it that he's getting it in front of as many people as possible. As he says, this is why I survived, to tell this story, Margoli said. And next we'll go to the obituary page of The Observer. Lorraine Fortner passed away peacefully in her sleep at her home on January 2nd. Lorraine was born in Terre Haute, Indiana. She graduated from Indiana State University then from the Marshall White School of Law at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. She worked at LexisNexis for over 40 years. She was active in several community organizations and activities, including the City Folk Dance Group, volunteering at performances and otherwise supporting the arts, among others. She was also very active with Temple Beth Orr. She enjoyed domestic, especially state or national parks, and international, including numerous counties and most continents, travels, often choosing the less traveled or more unusual places. She is survived by one brother, Walter, and Patricia, one sister, Leslie, one sister-in-law, Lorinda, and several nieces, nephews, great-nieces, and great-nephews. 
She was preceded in death by her parents, Robert and Vera, and one brother, Jim. Arrangements are pending. Donald Class, age 89, of Waynesville, passed away on December 22nd. Donald was preceded in death by his daughter, Deborah, and two sisters, Barbara Sokol and Marilyn Siegel. He is survived by his wife of 57 years, Harriet, two sons, David and Michael, two granddaughters, Natalie and Vivian, sister Joan Levin, brother-in-law David Siegel, and special nephew Thomas Siegel. Interment was at Riverview Cemetery. Alan Levin was born in Columbus on October 16, 1925, to Morris and Molly Winter Levin. He died peacefully on December 23rd at Bethany Village in his Homewood apartment with his sister-in-law, Karen Levin, present while he passed. He was preceded in death by his wife, Barbara Levin, Jacobson, infant son, Bradley Levin, father, Morris Levin, mother, Molly Levin, brothers, David Levin and Samuel Levin, and sister, Mardell Friedberg. He is survived by his twin brother, Louis Levin, nephews Ryan Levin and Allison, Howard Michaels, Gary Friedberg, Robert Levin, and Michael Levin and Pam, nieces Danielle Young, Diane Brune and Hal, Elaine Smith and Steve. He is survived by his former wife Stephanie Levin and her two sons, who were also Al's nephews, Brian Wolfe and Rebecca, M. Two Feathers and Jason Lambeck and Dara. He is also survived by numerous great-nieces and great-nephews and many other relatives and friends. Al and his twin Lou spent their entire lives together. They were each other's best friend. When people would ask about their being twins, they referred to themselves as womb-mates. They served together at Okinawa in the Army from 1944 to 1946, surviving being strafed by the Japanese on the first day that they were on the island. Throughout all their 98 years, they maintained that intense identical twin connection. It was a bond that transcends all others. In their later years, they became snowbirds, spending the winter in Florida along with Sarah Litwin. Al was a kind and gentle soul who always was concerned about the welfare of others. He was like a second father to Brian, Michael, and Jason. He was always willing to listen to them and to provide guidance and support throughout their lives. Al was one of the owners of Levin Service Company, along with his brothers Sam and Lou. They built many of the entertainment venues that Daytonians have enjoyed throughout the years. They were originally in the beer and wine carryout business, but expanded into the drive-in theater business in the late 1940s. They built the Sherwood Twin Drive-In Theater, Dixie Drive-In, the Captain Kidd Drive-In, along with many others throughout Ohio and in Chicago. Their crown jewel was the Contiki Theater on Salem Avenue. They also built the Rhino Restaurant in downtown Dayton. They purchased Caesars Creek Flea Market in the early 1980s and built Treasure Isles Market. Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. The family is requesting that any donations be made to Ohio's Hospice of Dayton. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you for listening.